Good morning. This is author and host Kevin Hopkins, and I want to welcome you to the Revelation Power podcast. We're working our way through the book of Job, and today we come to Job chapter 26. Now, 26, 27, 28, and 29, four chapters in a row, Job is going to keep the floor. And he's going to defend himself. And he's got a lot of things to say about his friends, to his friends, a few things to say about God, but most of it is justification of himself to defend his not guilt. And I want you to pay attention over the next four chapters of how ineffectively Job proves his unguiltiness. How hard it is to defend yourself against a lie. My grandfather's wisdom 50 years ago was, son, don't ever try to defend yourself against a lie. It's impossible. You can't prove what you haven't ever done. And by arguing against the lie, you only give it credibility. If it's not true, why would you spend so much energy fighting against it? Just let it be. That's the wisest advice I think I've ever gotten. And it's the hardest to follow. Because when someone says something about us that isn't true, the indignation and the desire to justify self just comes flying to the top. But I want you to watch and see how it works out for Job. How effective is it to try and justify ourselves? Job chapter 26, verse 1. Then Job answered, Well, you've certainly been a great help to a helpless man. You came to the rescue just in the nick of time. What wonderful advice you've given to a confused man. What amazing insights you've provided. Where in the world did you gain all this wisdom? How did you become so inspired? All the buried dead are in torment, and all who've been drowned in the deep, deep sea. Hell is ripped open before God, graveyards dug up and exposed. He spreads the skies over unformed space, hangs the earth out in emptiness. He pours water into cumulus cloud bags, and the bags don't burst. He makes the moon wax and wan, putting it through its phases. He draws the horizon out over the ocean, sets a boundary between light and darkness. Thunder crashes and rumbles in the skies. Listen, it's God raising his voice. By his power, he stills the sea storms. By his wisdom, he tames sea monsters. With one breath, he clears the sky. With one finger, he crushes the sea serpent. And this is only the beginning, a mere whisper of his rule. Whatever would we do if he actually raised his voice? Having waited for Zophar and hearing nothing, Job resumed his defense. God alive, he's denied me justice. God Almighty has ruined my life. But for as long as I draw breath and for as long as God breathes life into me, I refuse to say one word that isn't true. Although he just did. 
I refuse to confess to any charge that's false. There is no way I'll ever agree to your accusations. I'll not deny my integrity, even if it costs me my life. I'm holding fast to my integrity and not loosening my grip, and believe me, I'll never regret it. Let my enemy be exposed as wicked. Let my adversary be proven guilty. What hope do people without God have when life is cut short, when God puts an end to life? Do you think God will listen to their cry for help when disaster hits? What interest have they ever shown in the Almighty? Have they ever been known to pray before? I've given you a clear account of God in action, suppressed nothing regarding God Almighty. The evidence is right before you. You can see it all for yourselves. So why do you keep talking nonsense? Here, I'll quote your own words back to you. Listen to this nonsense. This is how God treats the wicked. This is what evil people can expect from God Almighty. Their children, all of them, will die violent deaths. They'll never have enough bread to put on the table. They'll be wiped out by the plague and none of the widows will shed a tear when they're gone. Even if they make a lot of money, they are resplendent in the latest flash in the latest fashions. It's the good who will end up wearing the clothes and the decent who will divide up the money. They build elaborate houses that won't survive a single winter. They go to bed wealthy and wake up poor. Terrors pour in on them like flash floods. A tornado snatches them away in the middle of the night. A cyclone sweeps them up, gone. Not a trace of them left, not even a footprint. Catastrophes relentlessly pursue them. They run this way and that, but there's no place to hide. Pummeled by the weather, blown to smithereens by the storm. So he's now re-quoting their words back to them so they can hear how foolish they sound. We'll take a break there and just deal with two chapters at a time because I like to keep this between 20 and 30 minutes. And if I read four chapters, we'll just be here all day. So after his friend's six-verse chapter, run out of things to say, Job starts to mock him and ridicule him. Well, You've certainly been a great help to a helpless man. You came to the rescue just in the nick of time. What wonderful advice you've given a confused man. What amazing insights you've provided. Where in the world did you get all this wisdom? How did you become so inspired? <laughs> That's not wisdom right there. That's just retort, mocking, ridicule. Job has ceased to seek wisdom from anyone at this point in time. He's entrenched. He's convinced that he's not wrong. He's convinced that they are idiots. And that he alone has the solution somewhere within, within himself, excuse me, to solve his own problem. Job has decided that that he alone is his answer. And so now he's mocking his friends. And to some extent, they deserve it. Then in, in about verse 5 of chapter 26, Job launches into this whole thing about dead people and, and how God is more vast than we could ever imagine. Some of it's wise, it has no point. All the buried dead are in torment. All who've been drowned in the deep, deep sea. 
Hell is ripped open before God and graveyards dug up and exposed. What he's saying is nothing is hidden from God. No one measures up to God. And no one can avoid God. So this point is something he wants them to understand. He doesn't believe he can avoid God. He doesn't believe he can trick God or out-argue God. He simply wants God to hear his case. And then he'll be happy with whatever judgment God comes up with. But he doesn't yet feel heard. God spreads the skies over unformed space, hung the earth out in the empty blackness, pours waters in, pours water into the cumulus clouds and, and they don't burst, makes the, wound wa- the moon wax and wan, puts it through its phases, draws the horizon even out over the ocean where there's nobody to see it, sets the boundary between light and darkness. Thunder crashes and rumbles in the skies like God raising his voice. By his power, he stills the storms on the sea. By his wisdom, he tames the sea monsters. With one breath, he clears the sky. With a finger, he crushes the sea serpent. And this is only the beginning, a mere whisper of his rule. What would we do if he actually raised his voice? Job says some kind of wise things there, though it's all in the interest of of kind of self-justification. But he's on to something. If God hated him, he'd be dead. If God didn't want him there, if God wanted to hurt him, he'd be gone. So what would you do, Job, if God actually not just raised his voice? What if, what if he actually spoke? Well, we're going to find out in just a few chapters. He waits for Zophar, but Zophar doesn't respond. His friends apparently are played out. So Job goes on. God alive. He's denied me justice. No, that's not true. Although Job has moved away from his friend's insistence on God's fairness, and Job is now talking about God's justice, he's claiming that God has denied him justice. That's not true. Justice is warranted When someone has done me wrong, when someone has intentionally harmed me. But see, Job was harmed by an unseen force. You and I know it was the devil. Job's justice against the devil is coming way in the future. And Job will get satisfaction even in this case. But God isn't denying him his justice. God's waiting to see how Job responds. God Almighty, he's ruined my life. Mm, It seems that way from Job's perspective, but that's not how it is. God didn't ruin Job's life. Job, it wasn't God. Satan ruined Job's life. But for as long as I draw breath and for as long as God breathes life into me, I refuse to say one word that isn't true. Well, Job, I understand that you don't know it, but you just did. It isn't God who's harmed you. See, that quote from the mouth of Job is meant to drive you and I back a couple of verses to say, Job, you dummy, you just lied already about God. He's not the one who's ruined your life. See, it catches us in the in the necessity 
of saying, no, Job, you're not telling the truth now. God's not the one ruining you. I refuse to confess to any charge that's false. Well, obviously, you won't even confess to the ones that aren't false. But there's wisdom in not confessing to false charges, to not lying about yourself even, simply to get through the argument, simply to let it go. And and I think all of us are guilty at some point of just letting the falsehood stand. And, and even saying things that make people think we did it. My grandfather's advice would be, don't argue against a lie, but don't say anything that acquiesces to it either. Don't admit to something you didn't do. Don't feel the need to defend yourself against a lie. Just keep your mouth shut. Another thing my grandfather always said that I'm sure your grandparents and parents said to you, it's, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a dummy than to open your mouth and prove it. There's no way I'll ever agree to your accusations. I'll not deny my integrity even if it costs me my life. I'm holding fast to my integrity and I'm not loosening my grip. And believe me, I'll never regret it. Let my enemy be exposed as wicked. Let my adversary be proven guilty. Oh, Oh, now Job is back to wisdom. It's taken him the long way around. But this is exactly how you respond to the lie. Let my enemy be exposed as wicked, not by my actions, by his own. It'll happen. Let my adversary be proven guilty. I don't have to plead the case. Just watch him. Just let time prove the case for you. What hope do people without God have, even when life is cut short? When God puts an end to life, do you think God will listen to their cry for help when disaster hits? Yes. Yes, in fact, I do. Job, for a moment, was right in the center of wisdom, and now he's off the farm again. Do you think that God will listen to their cry for help when disaster hits? God will listen to the cries of those who know him and those who don't. That's just how gracious God is. You see, I believe that grace is present in the world before we ever knew God. Otherwise, no one would ever come to know God. It was by his grace that I came to him at all. I believe that God is gracious to to those who know him and those who don't. When calamity comes and everybody cries out to God, does he ignore his own children because they're scattered amongst people who don't know him and don't want to? And those people who don't know him and have never wanted to before, in the midst of calamity, they cry out to God in great need to see if he's there. And do you think God's going to just ignore them? Is that your God? Is your God the one that ignores people when they're hurting? Is your God the one who remains silent to the people who've talked ugly about him and been silent to him? Is that what your Bible teaches? No, our Bible teaches us that if people mistreat us, we're to respond with kindness. 
the modern term is kill them with kindness. That's not quite what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to heap kindness on those who are evil to us, like burning coals on their head, that, that it might deeply affect them that as badly as they've treated us, we return it with kindness after kindness after kindness. Is God asking you to do that when it's not in his nature? No, that's exactly who God is. That's exactly how he treats even those who aren't his children. What do people without God have when life is cut short? Do you think God will listen to their cry for help when disaster hits? Yes. What interest have they ever shown the Almighty? Have they ever been known to pray before? Well, no. You see, Job, that's the thing about prayer. Everybody prays for the first time sometime. I don't know when the first time I ever prayed was, but I promise you there was a first time. I was a little kid, and I was praying at the at the leading of my parents or my grandparents. But there was a time I prayed for the first time. Now, some people don't have grandparents and parents like I had that, that encouraged them to pray, that involved them in prayer. They grow up away from prayer. They grow up away from God. But in their adulthood, something happens that causes them to cry out to God. And this is a really important question. Is it the nature of the God you serve to ignore them? When for the first time in their lives, they cry out to him in desperation? If that's the kind of God you serve, why? Who needs a God like that? Who needs a God that says he's not willing that any should perish? He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. That, that he would leave the 99 to seek the one. And then when the one finally calls out to him, he ignores them? You see how that doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible? Job's perspective of God is warped. It's wrong. I'll give you a clear account. I've given you a clear account of God in action. Suppress nothing regarding God Almighty. The evidence is right before you. You can see it all for yourselves. So why do you keep talking nonsense? Well, Job, why do you? You see, Job thinks he's right and they're wrong. Anytime I think I'm right and everybody else is wrong, I'm probably not right. Job lacks wisdom at some points. His friends were right about that. Job gets so wrapped up in his own thinking that he forgets he doesn't know everything. Every day, before I say anything on a podcast, I pray and I say, Lord, at least keep me from saying things that are stupid. <laughs> because when you record a podcast, you become kind of cognizant of the fact that this is going to live on the internet long after I'm gone. And other people are going to listen to it. And other people are going to say, oh, that Hopkins. What an idiot. He got some things right and he got some things really wrong. And he was too dumb to know the difference. 
because that's true of all of us. And so it's probably true of me. I just ask the Lord every day to kind of keep it to a minimum or at least help people understand why I said the things I did and, and the kind of heart it came from. Then Job quotes their own words back to them. And, and it's interesting because he's, he's standing up for the wicked people that he just said when they're in trouble, do you really think God's going to listen to them? He just made the accusation that those who don't belong to God don't get heard. And now he's going to mock his friends for saying that the wicked can only expect judgment and punishment from God. It's so convoluted. It's the reason that people trying to study or read Job get confused because Job goes back and forth in his own thinking. Now he's going to mock his friends for saying things that are very similar to what he just said. But what he's mocking them for is the insensitivity to say things like, this is what evil people can expect from God. Their children, all of them, will die violent deaths. They'll never have enough bread to put on the table. They'll be wiped out by the plague. None of the widows will shed a tear when they're gone. It sounds like they might be talking about him. He's calling them to account for accusing him. That's what he's doing in this mock. Even if they make a lot of money and are resplendent in the latest fashions, it's the good who will end up wearing their clothes and the decent who will divide up the money. So, see what he's doing. He's saying, you said that I was this rotten, evil person and that good people, moral people, would end up wearing my clothes and dividing up my money. But I've been good and moral. You've wrongfully accused me. They'll build elaborate houses that won't survive a single winter. You're sitting outside my house. It's been here for 30 years. You've come to visit me all this time. They go to bed wealthy, they wake up poor. Well, I've lost everything that mattered to me except my wife. I'm not yet poor. But, but why do you bring these accusations against me? They run this way and that, but there's no place to hide. Pummeled by the weather. Blown to smithereens by the storm. You see, what you've said about evil people is true about all people. That's the problem with drawing the lines in this world of those are the bad people and these are the good people. That's the problem with drawing lines in church of them out there and us in here. The lost and the saved. You see, we don't know where those divisions fall. I know that sounds a bit presumptuous to say, and I know that in our hearts, we want to say, I know the difference between saved and lost. Sure, for yourself, but when you look at a person on the street, you don't know if that person is saved or lost. I told a story in, in my book about Revelation from my experience about, goodness gracious, 30 years ago. I was a young pastor in a, in a new community. I just 
left my very first church and come to my second. And it was a little uh, rural community in Oklahoma, about 6,000 people. It had a subway. And so for lunch, every once in a while, I would go to Subway. They knew me by name. They knew the sandwich that I liked, and they could start making it as soon as I walked in the door. So I walked in the door, and they waved, and I saw a guy kind of start working on my sandwich, but I was in line behind another guy. So I stood there. His head was shaved. He had tattoos all over his scalp and his neck, uh, the front and the back of his neck. He had a tank top shirt on. I could see his shoulders and his arms were covered in tattoos. And I thought, good heavens, what in the world do we have here? What manner of crazy person have I just walked into in this subway? Then I looked at his tattoos and there was one right in the middle of the back of his neck. And it said, W-A-J-D. And I thought, oh, great, here we go. What kind of blasphemy is this? And I stood there thinking about it and trying to figure out in my head what it might mean. And the guy turned around. He had prison tattoos on his face. And he said, good afternoon. And I said, hi. He's like, are you having a great day? I said, I am. I, I'd like to ask you a question if I might. He said, sure, what is it? I said, on the back of your neck, it says W-A-J-D. Now I know what W-W-J-D means, but what is W-A-J-D? And he smiled broadly, he says, thank you for asking. Because he who would follow Jesus must not only ask, what would Jesus do? But according to the book of James, he must walk as Jesus did. <laughs> I, I was blown away. This guy then went, to talk, went on to talk about how important a person's Christian walk is because our walk is our witness. And that he came to know Christ from a person who didn't preach to him but lived Christ out in front of him. And that as a person who had lived a life of absolute crime and desolation, he was in prison where he found a man who actually lived Jesus Christ. And he said, I wanted what that guy had. I didn't care what would Jesus do. I wanted to know what that guy would do because I saw that everything he did in front of me was righteous. And when I asked him about it, he shared Christ with me. Then I wanted to know about Jesus. He got his sandwich. I stepped up and mine was already ready. I took it, and paid for it, went out in my car. And I sat in my car on that hot Oklahoma day. And I just wept. Not not at the story. The story was glorious. I wept because I had prejudged that guy. I had thought that by looking at someone, I could discern who was saved and who wasn't, who was demonic and who wasn't, who was good and who was bad, who was righteous and who was unrighteous. And that day, I became acutely aware of the fact 
I didn't have a clue. When people send me internet stories, YouTubes, TikToks, all the dumb stuff about conspiracy theories and who's good and who's bad and who's who's been replaced by a clone or a body double and all that stupid stuff. I just ask God to help me not judge other people because I don't know who's good and who's not. I don't walk with them. I don't get to see them except on a TV screen or a computer screen. I don't I don't walk with the people I see downtown. I see them frequently, but I don't walk in their shoes. I don't live their life. I don't know what they're struggling with, what victories they're seeing, what challenges they're overcoming, what they're praying about or not praying about. I don't know. And the Bible says, since I don't know, it's not my place to judge. Job mocks his friends for judging him. And in the process, yes, he's judging them back. He's also wrong. And eventually in this book, God's going to call him to account for that. He's going to call them all for to account for that. But he's going to call Job into account specifically. And when we get there, I'll tell you why just Job and not everybody else in the story. But, but God calls us not to judge. Job is chafing because his friends have been judging him. And he's right to chafe. He's wrong to turn around and do the same to them. Don't judge. The Bible promises that if we judge, God will judge back to us with the same measure, but pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's not a scripture about blessing. That's a scripture about judgment. A full measure of what you handed out is going to be shoveled back onto you, buddy. Don't judge. Today, as you walk through life, can I encourage you just to look for the wonder in each person, to look for the wonder in each circumstance, to look for God in the craziest places, to understand that even in the shadows, God is there. Even in the darkness, God is there. In the crime, in the filth, in the struggle, God's here. Let's go find him today.